Haggai chapter 1. We're going to continue on in verses 12 to 15 today. So let's begin. I'm going to read our passage, Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, and then we're going to pray together. It says this, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're so grateful for, to you, Lord, how, how deeply you've loved us in Jesus Christ. How much, how far you've gone to show us that you desire us so deeply. You, you want to know us and to love us, to keep us as your people. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for this scripture. Uh, Lord, keep me from anything untrue and lead me into all the truth as I share with my brothers and sisters here. May we learn together. May we rejoice together. May we see wonderful things out of your word and may we hide the truth of God in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. So the setting where we left off, um, Larry did an amazing job showing us how far Israel had come from Abraham to the king, to King David and Solomon, to those great moments of the prophets. But things weren't always so good. They sinned before the Lord. They rejected the Lord in various different ways. And finally, the Lord sent the people into exile, into Babylon, by the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And so the setting where we begin in our passage is, of course, we have the people, they've returned from exile. They are back in the land. The foundation of the temple has been laid. There has been work done already on the temple, but it has been paused. And the passage that Larry read, the verses that precede ours, the Lord essentially says, hey, um, your houses are really nice, and it looks like you've paused on my house. Uh, what's up with that? And he, keeps, he continues to refer to himself as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of heavenly army. So he's coming in not just as kind of a suggestion. He's coming in as the captain of heavenly armies. He's coming in as a regal king to his people. And he's saying, let me tell you, this is why the cosmic structure of all the things you love and cherish is upside down. You have wine and you have food and you have all these things, but it's not enough. You're not satisfied, right? There's no grain and wine and oil or there's not enough. And there's a drought that I've sent. And this drought and this cosmic upheaval, the king has been displaced. And so the whole cosmos, the whole earth, the whole world of Israel has been turned upside down along with the displacement of the king, Yahweh. 
And God has not been arbitrary. This is not just some whim of emotion like me or you. Like we just don't like someone someday and then we get mad at them and we throw a drought at them. Not that we can throw droughts at people, but God can. This is not arbitrary. He promised that this would be the curses for disobeying the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. He's not being arbitrary. He's being faithful to the covenant, which had blessings attending obedience and had curses that attended disobedience. So, in fact, God sending this judgment, this drought, this lack, was actually God's faithfulness to the terms of the covenant. So God is not arbitrary, and that's really important that we that we understand that. He's being just. He's being good to the covenant. Um, and so this is the setting. This is where we get to the passages the, the verses that we have before us today. And I would jump right into our verses, but I can't. Uh, before we dive in, there's actually something that we need to grasp of this historical moment as a whole that's going to help us understand our passage today. And this is the way I would put it, is that looming large over the people of Israel at this historical moment was a question in the mind of Israel. And that question was, does Yahweh still want to be our God? You see, what had God said about Israel before the exile? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 27, this is what the Lord said about Israel in His judgment. I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I have chosen. Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Hosea, the prophet, the Lord commanded Hosea to take an unfaithful wife and to have children by her. This unfaithful wife was a picture of Israel as an unfaithful wife. And he was told to name one of his children. In Hebrew, it's Lo-Ami, not my people. This was a picture of God's judgment, his anger for Israel breaking the covenant. He said, for you are not my people and I am not your God. He said also in Hosea in a similar place in chapter 5, he said, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like dew that goes away so early. They have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt faithlessly with me. So Israel is now asking, does God want to be our God? Does he still want to do that? Does he still want to be in a relationship with us? This, This is a question mark hanging over our passage. And what did Israel say about Yahweh after he had destroyed Jerusalem, raised the temple, taken the children and the wives out of the street by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and devastated the entire city? What did Israel say about God? How did they think about Yahweh? Well, we learn some of this in the book of Lamentations, chapter 2, verses 2 to 6, where the whole book of Lamentations is it's a lamentation, it's mourning for the destruction of Jerusalem. Listen to these words. It says, uh, starting in verse 2 of Lamentations chapter 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground and dishonor the king and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. The Lord has become 
like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place, the temple. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. Does Yahweh, does he want to be our God? Does he still want to be? Right? And then in our in the passage that preceded ours, Yahweh has recently posed a question through Haggai in, implicitly saying, well, you paused the building on the temple. Do you, do you want Do you want me to live here? Right? And so this is the tension that's hovering over this historical moment, hovering over the exiles and hovering over our passage today. We have before us a damaged and fractured relationship, a broken covenant. Right? We have, we have two parties that, that love each other in the best of times, but they've been separated and they're coming together and it's like, do you still want me? Right? Will you have me back after all that I've done to you, God? And remember, in, this, in all of this, God is just. In all of this, God has only ever been compassionate, slow to anger, faithful, kind, and loving. And it's Israel that's thinking, we've really messed things up. And this is what makes our passage today so amazing. Is that what I'm going to submit to you today, and the bulk of what I share with you, is that the passage we are dealing with is nothing less than the renewal of the covenant. Then the coming back together of Israel and Yahweh in love and in affection and in power. And so I want to, I don't want to just assert that because you'll think, well, that's a nice idea. And, you know, the passage may or may not say that. Right? So I don't want you to run away too quick. I'm going to go through a lot of reasons why I, I, I want to convince you why, why this passage is a renewal of the covenant. It's a rebirth of the relationship between Israel and their God. And so, number one, what do we have in verses, in, in the beginning, right? In verse 12, we have a group of people. It's not just any group of people. It's a very special group of people. We're introduced to Zerubbabel, who is of the line of David, right? He's not the king right now. Darius is the king, unfortunately, right? King Darius of Persia. But we have Zerubbabel, who is the son of David. We have Joshua, the high priest. So we have a, we have a supposed to be king, and we have a priest. That's good. And we have the remnant of the people, the whole remnant, right? And remnant is just a word that means those left over, the survivors, the ones who escaped the exile in Babylon. So we have this whole group here. And what I want you to understand is that from the point of the Hebrew Bible, and especially the Hebrew prophets, this is a group back in the land that is seething with potential, with prophetic potential. And the reason for that is that there were prophets during the exile. And what did they say? Yeah, this is really bad, Israel. This is really bad. But guess what? A day is going to come when God is going to end your exile. He's going to bring you back in the land. He's going to take you to himself again as a faithful husband and you as his faithful bride. And so now we have this group and we are being zeroed into the fact that this is full of potential here. This is full of meaning. Ezekiel talked about my servant David, who would shepherd the people, right? Someone, a messianic figure from the line of David. And we're looking to Zerubbabel and we're like, yeah, you know, this could be it. Isaiah 46 verses 3 through 4 speaks of the remnant, right? We have Zerubbabel, we have the remnant, we have a priest because God is a just God, 
right? There must be atonement made and there were provisions in Israel, sacrifices and offerings and ways in which God's holiness wouldn't overwhelm the people, right? So we need a priest. We don't just need a king. We need someone to offer right sacrifice before God, uh, blood to atone for sin. And then what about the remnant? The remnant was always promised that the remnant will return, the prophets over and over again. Those who survive this judgment will come back into the land. Listen to Isaiah 46, verse 3 and 4. It says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant, right? All the remnant, just like we have all the remnant here in our passage. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. This was written to comfort the exiles. And this is a side note, but I love this kind of stuff in the Bible. Look at all these verbs and words. This is mother language. I bore you. I carried you. The womb. I made you. I'll save you. Think about the picture. Think of a mother carrying someone who's old. That's the love of God. He's a mother and he's carrying someone who's, who's old and fragile and he's carrying them in, in his arms as a mother. It's, a, it's an incredible picture of love, promise for the remnant. And here we have in our passage the remnant. These promises are for the remnant that's escaped. The second reason is that this group is in a state of obedience, right? In verse 12, it says, and they obeyed. That's literally the first word in Hebrew that begins our passage. And they obeyed, right? It's, it's right up front. They're prepared for obedience. And we'll return to this a little deeper later on. But essentially, they are ready to accept the terms of the covenant. Whereas before the exile, it was clear that they were not ready. They were not willing to accept the terms of the covenant. And so the covenant was fractured, in a sense. And they were sent away. And Yahweh said, I will send you out of my... Sight. I mean, and, and think about how strong this language, if someone looks you in the face and says, get out of my sight, I mean, whew, that's hard. And when it comes from someone who's only ever always just and righteous, that, that's a wound that needs healing. But it was just. So they're ready. They're, they're ready to be obedient. We have the entire group together, all Israel as a nation. They're poised for obedience. The third reason is, notice that the people fear the Lord. It says in the ESV that they feared the Lord. And I'm not really too... This isn't my favorite translation choice for the ESV, because they actually left an entire word untranslated in Hebrew. And it's mipnei, and it literally means before the Lord, in His presence. They didn't just fear the Lord, they feared before the Lord, which gives a sense of immediacy before is to be in the presence of someone, right? If you're in Hebrew, if you're mipnei, 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 that literally means from the face of. But it, it's, a, it's a way of saying in, you know, together, right there. They're, they're face to face, right? So there's an immediacy with which they have become afraid. They've been encountered by the Lord of hosts in a very powerful, personal Way and this is this manifestation, this this thing that causes their fear. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid. Is compounded by the fact that Haggai is called a Moloch. Often that's used of the messenger who comes straight out of heaven, 
right? The angel. This is another way to trans- translate this word messenger here is angel. It's often used to, to refer to the angel of the Lord. Sometimes that's the Lord himself. And so very rarely, I think Malachi is called a Malach in the Hebrew Bible, but also here in our text, Haggai is called a Malach, almost like an angel. And I don't think it means he's, actually he's not human, he's divine. I don't think that's what it means, but it's stressing the immediacy of this revelation. He is right there from the Lord. And to compound this, there's a really strange word here that only appears once in the Hebrew Bible that is is a word for like commission or message. And it's from the same root. And it's and it's actually kind of a, a play on words. And and the Lord likes to play on words a lot. And so if you learn if you start to learn any Hebrew, you'll notice that. And literally in Hebrew, and I want to sound this out for you because I, I want you to enjoy hearing this because this is how it was heard when it was spoken, right? It, Haggai is called Malach Adonai Bamalachut Adonai, right? He's the Malach with the Malachut. And you're supposed to just enjoy that as you hear that. And I wanted, like, I'm like, I want them to enjoy that. Because, like, I'm reading it and I, I enjoy it. And when it was first heard, it was enjoyed. But more than that, this stresses that immediacy. He's the Malach with the message. He's the, he's the angel almost with a message straight from Yahweh. And the way I would translate this is he's a messenger with Yahweh's own message. This is like a handwritten letter, like given to Haggai. And Haggai's like, I have nothing to do with this. And he just hands it over to Israel. He's like, this is all God. This is just from God. I'm just, I'm just the guy here. Here you go. And so they're afraid. They're in the presence. For, somehow they have sensed that Haggai's message, his word, has brought the very presence of the Lord to them. And they're afraid. And there's a mix of real fear and there's a mix of reverence. And then there's the obedience that we talked about. And all of this is swirling together. That's the, that's the second reason. Or the third reason, sorry. And the fourth reason is we learn that God begins to be active among his people. He, quote unquote, stirs them up in verse 14. Right? He stirs them up. And we see this same verb form used in in some other places. And two of those other places where this exact way of saying it, and the Lord stirred up, is used in 1 Chronicles 5.26 and 2 Chronicles 21. 16. But the context there is God stirring up the enemies of Israel against Israel, right? Like the Lord is stirring up the bad guys to get Israel. But it's the same use of a verb. But here, interestingly enough, this stirring up is being done of Israel. The Lord of hosts, the king of heavenly armies, he's not stirring up other armies, Against Israel, he's stirring up Israel, right? But Israel isn't a killing army, we learn. Israel is a, a building army, right? An army of builders. They need to start building the temple. They've neglected the temple and the Lord's like, do you want me? Because I don't have anywhere to stay and you won't build it. And I've asked you to build it and you won't do it. But he stirs them up, right? And they become his army this time. There's a reversal. It's not the, him stirring up their enemies. It's them being stirred up to build and to complete the house of the Lord. And at, at this point, the attentive reader, and this is kind of where we're going to go on excursion, but I actually think this is important because an attentive reader is going to say, wait a second here. It says they obeyed. And then later on in the passage, it says the Lord stirred up 
their spirit, right? The spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant. I was always told, isn't it the other way around? Isn't it like the Lord stirs you up and then you obey, right? That's good reform theology, right? It's like, hey man, we're all very sinful and we're, we're, there's nothing good that we can do on our own. We need the Lord. We need His grace at all times and in all things and in all places. So, What's going on here? It seems like it's like if I wrote it, I'd, I'd kind of flip it around and I'd say, you know, the Spirit came and then, then I got to it. But that's not how our passage is. And there's three ways that I would, I would help you think through this. One of the cautions would be, and this is really, really important, and I think it can be helpful to us, is we don't want to take every scriptural text we read and think about it as salvation. Not every scripture is speaking of initial moments of quote-unquote, being saved, as we often say it. You know, are you saved? When did you get saved? And how long have you been saved? And we have this language that we use. And um, not every passage of Scripture is, there's a fancy theological word for it, soteriology. It just means the study of salvation. Not every passage is talking about salvation or justification or how to get saved. And I don't think that's the main focus of this passage either. But also, there's, there's no reason that we should feel to make this sort of chronological. Um, it seems to me that what, what the author wanted to stress was obedience. And then we get a notice in the center. And then at the end, he talks about them being stirred up. But these could be kind of, right, almost a simultaneous thing. We, we don't have to sort of totally, completely pull them apart and separate them out. The other thing that we want to be careful to do is we don't actually want to blunt the call to obedience in the Bible. We don't want to make it softer than it really is, and, and we don't want to make it less necessary and important than it really is. And so, you know, sometimes it's like, well, did the Lord stir you up or did you stir you up? And it's kind of like, yes, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, God was just, I don't know, God was just working in me. You know, I don't know how that happened. It just happened, right? And so we don't always have to have a perfect answer for like, which one comes where? We, we just know at the end of the day that we confess that God is at work in his people. And this is what our passage says explicitly. He stirred up their spirits. But the obedience as well. Acts 5.32 says that the Lord gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So we don't want to take... The strength out of that, you know, because God, yes, he brings us to faith and and stirs us up by the Holy Spirit, sometimes to initiate things in our lives. But sometimes he gives us the spirit because he says, hey, if you obey me, there's blessing, there's covenant blessing that awaits you. And I have infinite measures of my spirit that I'm waiting and willing to give you to empower you to build a temple, to build the church, to be a powerful witness in the world end of the excursion reason number five for and remember i'm giving you reasons for why i believe this is a covenant renewal reason five was that they get to work on finishing the temple i mean what what more can you think about a rebirth or renewal when you actually get the words and they came and they began to work they they got to it right so whatever happened here which I'm saying is a rebirth of the covenant, a covenant renewal ceremony almost, is going on. It's happening. The people are really getting to work. This isn't the first time we've seen this, right? And many commentators have noticed a similarity between our passage 
and what happened at Mount Sinai. Right? The first major covenant marriage ceremony between Israel and God. You see, Israel was going, do you want me back? And so God was like, what's a way for God to say, I want, I really want you back? Well, how about another wedding ceremony? How about another renewal of those promises? How about another renewal of those covenant blessings? And so just like our passage, in, at Sinai we have Moses as a leader, king. We have Aaron, the priest. Okay, we got a king, cool. We got a priest, got it. And we have the remnant of the tribes of Israel who were slaves, exiles in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh. We have Yahweh who shows up through the prophetic word on the mountain. The people promise to obey and they're afraid of the Lord's voice. It's such a presence, it's such a power in the word of God that comes down from the mountain that they say, hey, look, Moses, we can't even endure this voice that's coming to us. Like our passage, they are stirred up by God's spirit. They bring golden offerings for the building of the tabernacle. And finally, they work together to finish the tabernacle, the place where the king will live and dwell among them. So what a better way for God to say, hey, remember that really awesome moment we had at the beginning? We made all those promises to each other and we vowed to one another that we'll, be, we'll both be faithful till, till death do us part. Remember that? We, we can do that again. We can do that again. We can, we can get through this, right? But I've left something out. My sixth reason, and probably the biggest reason to see this as a covenant renewal, is the content of Haggai's message. Remember the, the message with the messenger? Well, the what did he say? What did the Lord say? Right? Once they were poised for obedience, what did God say to them? He said, I'm with you. After all this time, after years in exile, tears and weeping and song and lament and wondering if there's ever going to be in Israel again, God says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And there, I was looking kind of under the hood here in the original language. There's one other place in the Hebrew Bible where this exact construction is used in Hebrew. There's a lot of ways in which God has said, I'm with you in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible. Do not get me wrong. You're thinking, no, there's not one other place. I know a couple of places. I'm not saying that, but there's only one other place in the Hebrew Bible that uses the exact same Hebrew words in the, in the order we have them here. And guess where it is? Where, where else did he say, I am with you? It was in Jeremiah 21, verse 5. But what did he say in Jeremiah 21, verse 5? He says, I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Those are the same words there in Hebrew. I am with you. But the way he used them in Jeremiah 21 was I'm with you in anger. I'm with you in fury. I'm with you in judgment. And in Hebrew, it's Ani Itkem. And he says it now, Ani Itkem, but he means something very different now. He means, I'm with you. I love you. 
I'm back. If you'll have me, I'll have you. This is a renewing of these promises. And think about Israel. That Now they're thinking, Haggai says, I'm with you in that same way that Jeremiah said it. And they're like rushing off to the sacred archives and they're like, they're like where have we heard this before? Where have we heard this before? And they go to the archives and they pull down whatever scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah. They, maybe they still have. Maybe they've recovered some of them. And they unroll it and they're, they're looking down and they're like, I'm with you. Oh no, he was, he was with us for judgment. But now he's with us. So God is like, he's saying something that would turn their memory on to the severity of their judgment so that now they understand the greatness of his love. You ever like can go back through your text messages like, man, I, used to, I remember when they said this like that before, but then someone says it a different way. Like You have that memory of the bad, but it's just like heightened by the sense of the new way in which the language is now used. This is what God says, I'm with you, declares the Lord. And so what is the significance of this? What is the significance of I'm with you? Because it's rather short. I'm with you, declares the Lord. And it says they, and they stirred him up and they got to work on the temple. Right? Very short phrase. Well, there happened to be another prophet at the exact same historical moment who is a contemporary of Haggai. At the same exact time, uh, the same exiles, same group, same people. Prophet Zechariah. And we read in chapter 8, verses 3 to 8, something that sort of expands what it means for the king to be with his people. And I want to read it to you and I want you to listen to it because this is pure joy. This is pure love. It's just it's just sapped with love and good stuff. This is what the Lord says in Zechariah chapter 8, verses 3 to 8. He says, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. The king's back. The husband's back. I've returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. Right? Not disobedient. They'll be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. That's what it means when God says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm back. I love you. In the same chapter, we learn how integral obedience is. To this new covenant, this new renewal, this rebirth of that covenant at Sinai, right? And it's in our same chapter, just a few verses later, Zechariah 8, 15 to 17. The Lord says this, and let's all listen because we're the people of God gathered together hearing this word too. So, and, and this is what the Lord says. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth with one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. I'm with you means speak the truth to one another. Be kind to one another. Love 
each other. Make proper judgments. No false oaths. I hate these things, says the Lord. I'm with you now. Things are different. You can't keep living the way you were. And our own service, I want to point this out, our own service. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the way our service goes along every single Sunday is not accidental. It's formatted in the form of a covenant renewal every single Sunday. Every Sunday we gather as a nation, a people of God. We confess our sins and we encounter the prophetic word in songs, reading and preaching. And as we hear the word, we're invited further up the mountain to the king's own table. And we partake of the emblems of his flesh and his blood. And we hear him say, I am with you always to the end of the age. And eventually the temple in our passage, the temple would be finished eventually and the Greeks would defeat the Persians and then the the Romans would defeat the Greeks and the Jews would find themselves under Roman rule, Roman occupation. Herod would build a great temple and it would be magnificent and glorious, but then there was two questions that started to come over the top of heads of the people again and some of those questions were, are we still in exile? Because we're under foreign rule. And then the second question is, is Yahweh still with us? Right? Hundreds of years went by from our passage in Haggai till uh, the time we read from the pages of the New Testament. And there was a question, the, the prophets have been silent. They haven't said a word. Does God still love us? Is He still with us? What about our sins? What does He have to say for those? They've been piled up over these many centuries. And it's into this setting that we read things like in Matthew where Jesus was born and he's called God with us, right? It's in that setting where they're wondering that question again. Is Yahweh still with us? Does he still love Israel? Does he still want us? Does he want us back? And, and the answer when we read about Jesus and when we read that he's born and that he's the king of Israel, the answer that we're being given is, I still love you, Israel. I still love you. I always will. And I'll never not love you. And if I have to come again and again and again and again, I'm going to love you forever. And if you'll have me back, if if you'll let me dwell with you, if you'll sit with me, if you'll speak truth with your neighbor, if you'll live differently, if you'll just listen to my word, if you'll just obey me, I'll be with you. I'll love you. That's why we're told about Jesus, because he's God in human person. He's the God of Haggai. He's the God of Zerubbabel. He's the God of the whole remnant. And he's with us. He came as a baby. He was born. He became human with us in our humanity, with us in our struggles and trials, and with us as the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. You see, he, came, he loved Israel this time in Jesus in a way that they weren't ready to comprehend. He said, you know what? I'm not going to do this over and over and over again. In Jesus, I'm establishing by my own blood, by my own atoning sacrifice, an eternal covenant, an eternal marriage that will never be remade. It'll be sure forever. This is why Jesus makes us fishers of men, builders of the kingdom. This is why he's the same today yesterday and forever. This is why when he took the Passover cup, he said, this is my blood of the covenant. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you and we love you. So often we approach you and we're, we're struck by a sense, the gravity, the weight of the fact that you have never once, ever, wronged us, O Lord. You've only ever been faithful. You've only ever been good. You've only ever been tender as a mother to us. You've only ever carried us and born with our sin and our failure, Lord, our rebellion over and over. And now in Christ, you speak a better word, a word that says this thing is permanent and I'll have you again and again and again. Lord, thank you for this. It's, there's no words for it, but we love you. We, we want to hear the refrain. We never get tired of hearing you say that you're with us. Lord, thank you for today for being with us. In your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.